So reading from 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, And I believe it in part, for there must be a faction among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognised. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup. It's a new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And the other things I will give direction when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks very much, Megan. Please do keep the Bible uh, open at that passage in front of you. And in your order of service, you'll find some note or a place for notes, an outline uh, on the third page on the inside. It's worth knowing that in the second century AD, Christians were still a mystery to the largely secular Roman world around them. 
I guess some things never really change. In fact, unbelievers were more nervous about what Christians didn't do, that is to join them in the idolatry and immorality of the day, than in what they did do. And as a result, all sorts of scurrilous accusations and rumors were concocted against Christians in the hope of attracting the emperor's attention and attracting, of course, his authority as well. So claims were made based loosely on what was known about these Christians, that they practiced child sacrifice, cannibalism, and sexual depravity. I mean, they called each other brother and sister and then married them. So a Roman governor decided to round up some Christians and through interrogation and torture discovered things about Christians which surprised him, but purely, they surprised him because they were so ordinary and harmless. And thankfully for us, he reported all these things in a letter to Emperor Trajan in about 112 AD, so not very long after the last apostles died. The governor writes to the emperor and says, what I discovered by my interrogations and torture was that these Christians were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to a God and to bind themselves by oath, not to do some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. And when this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. And note, ordinary and innocent food, not the carved up flesh of some ritually sacrificed child or other person, despite what the rumors said. Of course, the Lord's Supper is ordinary and innocent food. It's just bread and grape juice or wine in some churches. So why is Paul so concerned about how it's eaten that he writes half a chapter about it? Why should such a small square of bread and a few drops of grape juice actually, on the other hand, be so refreshing to us as Christians? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let's pray before we go any further. Our Lord and God, this word is your word. The supper is your supper. Please help us to seek your understanding today as we come to your word, that we may enjoy this gift and use it to its full potential for our benefit and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it might help to put 1 Corinthians 11 that we've read this morning in a little bit of context. Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth is written in response, actually, to another letter that was first written to him. It's worth knowing that. And in that letter, there seem to be five or six questions or concerns. And this helps to understand how 1 Corinthians fits together, because every so often you find Paul saying, now concerning this, and now concerning that. And essentially what he's doing is he's answering the questions that have been asked to him in a letter. So what he does is as these questions are raised, he answers them carefully from the Bible, based on Jesus' teaching from the Old Testament, and the question which relates then to what we read a moment ago in chapter 11 actually turns up way back in chapter 8. So if you've got a Bible there, it'd be very helpful if you flipped back to chapter 8, and we're going to work our way forward quickly from chapter 8, verse 1, back to our reading this morning. So in chapter 8, verse 1, the question which leads Paul eventually to talk about the Lord's Supper is this, now concerning food offered to idols. So it seems to be that people ask Paul a question, Paul, can we eat the food we buy in the marketplace that we know has been offered to idols? 
And so what we have at the end of chapter 11 is actually Paul wrapping up his answer to this question. How did we get from one to the other? Well, the obvious connection, of course, is the connection of food. Uh, it's about what we eat and don't eat. But what Paul does is he moves from this fairly simple question of we may eat food offered to idols, we may not eat food offered to idols, to a deeper question. How do we use our freedom in Christ for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ? And so if we flick ahead just a couple of chapters to chapter 10 and verse 24, or 23, Paul says in chapter 10, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And so Paul uses this principle to get under the skin, or this question to get under the skin of something that deeply concerns him across the whole letter, how the Corinthian Christians apply this principle of denying self-interest for the sake of others, especially here to eating and drinking, which he then takes further in this idea of the Lord's Supper, that sacred fellowship. Now, obviously, they weren't denying self-interest for the sake of others as they approached the Lord's Supper. That's why what we read about in chapter 11 is a, is a free-for-all. It's a literal food fight where it's everyone for themselves. But Paul recognizes a deeper connection as well. He recognizes that the failure to have this uh, deny self-interest for the interests of others is only a symptom there's a deeper connection, too, between the question about eating food offered to idols and eating the food of the Lord's Supper, which we find in chapter 10, but back in verse 16. So have a look with me from verse 16 of chapter 10. He writes, The cup of blessing that we bless, so talking about the Lord's Supper, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now, you might have noticed there's a word that keeps popping up in that little section that we read, and that's the word participation. And when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he actually used a Greek word here, which we see translated differently in other parts of the New Testament. It's the word that we often see as fellowship. And not just tea and bickies, mind you. This is about a close relationship built around a shared love and a common purpose. Fellowship. The point being, of course, that when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are enjoying fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is why some other churches call the Lord's Supper communion. Communion is an old word which also means fellowship. And of course, you can't have fellowship with Jesus and with demons. It's one or the other. You can't have your cake or your sacrificed meat and eat it. Now, bringing these two ideas together is very important as we get into chapter 11, that other person-centeredness and fellowship with Christ. 
Because the Lord's Supper is about two ideas then. It's about fellowship with Jesus and fellowship with one another. Christ's people. But we aren't doing two separate disconnected activities when we enjoy the Lord's Supper. It's not as though we have an arrow going up and down. This is me and Jesus when I take the Lord's Supper. And then there's also a horizontal arrow, which is me and everyone else is doing it at the same time. Actually, we're doing one thing as we take part in the fellowship of the Lord's Supper together. Because as we fellowship with Jesus, by nature, we're fellowshipping with one another in him. It's, it's not two lines, if you imagine it. It's a triangle. Uh, we're doing one thing, automatically enjoying fellowship with one another, expressing our oneness and togetherness in the gospel in Christ. So fellowship with Jesus, fellowship with one another in Christ in the Lord's Supper, and we're going to keep this in mind as we move into chapter 11. Brings us to the first heading you've got on the outline in front of you. Dangerous habits. So Paul moves in, in verse 17 of chapter 11 to talk squarely about the Lord's Supper. He begins by telling them they've gotten into some very dangerous habits. Now, at the moment, there's a a nationwide crackdown on the dangerous habit of using a mobile phone behind the wheel of a car. And quite right, because it's a dangerous thing to do. It can result in injury and death because of the distraction it causes. The Corinthians obviously didn't have cars and mobile phones, but their dangerous habits are to do with the Lord's Supper. And they are so serious and so distracting that it's actually led to illness and death among their church family in verse 30. Not that it stopped them, of course. I mean, I guess that's human nature. So let's look at the problem in verse 17. The Bible says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, Paul has actually commended them back at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, He commended them for maintaining the traditions that he's passed on to them. But it seems all they've done is maintain things. And as they've done, they've gotten into a dangerous habit of self-centered gluttony instead of Christ-centered worship together. Now, what would typically happen in the early church is you'd have kind of a bring-and-share meal and then celebrate the Lord's Supper afterwards. Now, as we read in the the letter from the governor earlier, Christians didn't have a special day that they could meet and come together for church as we do today. Uh, They kind of had to fit it around the Roman work week. What that meant is that the rich could arrive whenever they wanted and bring whatever they wanted along. Uh, But the slaves could only arrive when they got off work, or the working classes could only arrive when they got off work. And so the rich found it easy to arrive early, bring the best, help themselves to what was available, and leave the leftovers for whoever came late. And so they went hungry. This is why Paul asks them, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Imagine just turning up as a a slave in the first century, celebrate the Lord's Supper with your brothers and sisters in Christ to find that they've eaten it all. Humiliating. Now, verse 19 is a sobering verse. 
because of time, I'd encourage you to reflect on it in the light of what we mentioned last week about the visible and invisible church. But just to say a few things about it, when Paul talks about divisions and factions, he actually uses the Greek terms that we get our words schism and heresy from. What this means is that the bad habits in practice at the church in Corinth were only symptoms of much deeper issues. These are serious things. And they're deeper issues which actually had to do with an understanding of the gospel itself, not just a practice. In other words, it wasn't their sinful appetites that were getting in the way of doing things the right way. It was actually their poor understanding of the gospel which drove their dangerous habits. And so like using a phone behind the wheel, this habit has dangerously distracted them from Jesus. So what's the apostle's solution? Well, quite simply, to get back to basics, back to the gospel. This is our second heading, back to basics. Please follow with me from verse 23. So Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So what Paul reminds the Corinthian Christians is that it's not just what's been taught by the apostles, it's also what he has, he says he's received from the Lord. Paul receives these words directly from Jesus at times. We read that many times in Acts. So he's received from the Lord directly the teaching about the Lord's Supper, which matches what the apostles have taught. And so there's utmost credibility in what he's saying about the Lord's Supper. Now, these words, of course, should be very familiar to us. They reflect uh, what the Bible says, what the gospel writers record of Jesus' words in the upper room in Matthew 26 and Mark 14 and Luke 22. Clearly, getting the Lord's Supper right and understanding Jesus' words is so important for us that God thought it useful to include it in the Bible four times. We should take note of that. Well, let me make three comments on the Lord's Supper here. Firstly, you remember the night Jesus was betrayed was the evening of Passover. All the Gospels tell us it was the Passover meal that Jesus wanted to eat with his disciples. Passover, of course, was the night God's people remembered their their rescue from slavery in Egypt when the painted blood of the sacrificed lamb on their doorposts meant that God's angel passed over them and brought death to the Egyptians but spared them. What Jesus does in instituting the Lord's Supper then is he fulfills everything the Passover symbolized. And so we don't eat lamb at the the Lord's Supper. Bit of a shame in some ways, I guess, but uh, there's a reason for it. We eat bread because in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It's done. And so we eat bread to sustain us, to nourish us, because the Lord's Supper is the ultimate Passover. Secondly, Jesus commanded that we eat and drink the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him. Now, this should be obvious, but sadly, the Roman Catholic Church has taught for a long time a false and dangerous view of the Lord's Supper. 
in that it's not a remembrance, but it's a repetition and a reenactment of the sacrifice of Jesus every time it's done for the forgiveness of sins. That's what the mass or the sacrifice of the mass is believed to be, and it's nonsense. Jesus himself was standing in the room on that Thursday night with his flesh still on his body and the blood still on the inside when he said, this is my body and this is my blood. The elements don't magically become Jesus. And so we eat and drink the Lord's Supper to remember Jesus and what he's done. But when it comes to remembering, we're not talking about remembering in a sentimental way. You know, those kind of memories that pop up in your Facebook feed and you go, oh, I remember that day. You know, we don't say, come to the Lord's Supper and say, oh, yes, I'd forgotten that Jesus died for me. Isn't that nice? The broken bread reminds me that I belong to Jesus today because Jesus himself was once broken to satisfy God's anger at my sin. The cup reminds me that I belong to Jesus today because Jesus himself once shed his own blood to establish a new relationship between me and God. This is what Jesus meant when he spoke of a new covenant. His death on the cross established a new relationship with God and with his people where where sin no longer stood in the way. I guess in some ways it's a bit like a wedding anniversary. For me, uh, one day in 2008, my relationship with with my wife changed completely forever. Uh, In the same way, one day, many, many years ago, your relationship with God changed entirely because of something Jesus did. It's a new covenant and a new relationship that we remember. Thirdly, in verse 26, Paul reminds us unmistakably that the Lord's Supper is about the death of Jesus, the death of Jesus. It proclaims the Lord's death. So like baptism, the Lord's Supper is a visual gospel sermon. It proclaims Jesus' death to us. It says, Jesus died for you. And as it does, it looks forward to what Jesus' death in the past will achieve for us in the future. When he comes, every time we eat and drink the Lord's Supper, it tells us that Jesus' death in the past has secured our place in heaven in the future. And the ongoing proclamation of Jesus' death for us in the Lord's Supper, constant reminder, by this reminder, we're strengthened and we're sustained as we wait for Jesus to return and take us to be with him in his kingdom forever. Often when I serve the Lord's Supper here at Grace, I'll The words I use will reflect these things. I'll usually say something along these lines, that the body or blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, preserve your body and soul to everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart by faith and with thanksgiving. And so, yes, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, these are the basics of the Lord's Supper, going right back to what Jesus did with his his disciples that fateful Thursday night before he went to the cross in Jerusalem, not too many years before. All good so far. But then Paul makes a startling statement in verse 27. Look there with me. He says, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. In other words, the Bible says there is a way to eat and drink the Lord's Supper which may actually put us in the company of those who crucified Jesus. This is a very serious warning. We should probably find out what the unworthy manner is so we know how to avoid it. 
This is up to our third heading, preventative judgment. We'll keep reading from verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When we're judged by the world, uh, sorry, uh, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give directions when I come. Now, to help us understand what's going on here, I want to make a point about what's happening when Christians eat and drink the Lord's Supper. Now, of course, we, we've already said that the bread and the grape juice don't actually become Jesus. That's, that's nonsense. That's superstition. But I know there are also differences of conviction here among Reformed evangelical believers. But I certainly am convicted that if there are such severe consequences for abusing the Lord's Supper, then this can't be simply what some have called a bare memorial. It's got to be something more happening here. If you remember back to what we read in chapter 10, we noticed that the Lord's Supper is actually a way in which we enjoy real fellowship with Jesus in the Lord's Supper. He is present with us in a real and special way in the Lord's Supper by his spirit, not by magic bread and wine, but he's present by his spirit in the words of scripture and in the signs that he gave us. So the unworthy manner of verse 27 then is less about eating and drinking in the wrong way. It's actually about claiming fellowship with Jesus and his death for us in the wrong way. And so we're told to examine ourselves in verse 28. Now, something interesting here, that word for examine is actually the same word Paul used back in verse 19 to describe those who are genuine, those who have passed the test. I recently bought a pair of Beats wireless headphones from an op shop for $10. Spot my first mistake. They didn't work so well, so I went on online and found out there are actually a number of ways to spot fakes, uh, a number of ways to test if they were genuine, and it turns out, surprise, surprise, that they weren't. What's the test to see if we are genuine? Well, it's whether or not, it's to, it's whether or not we discern the body as Paul goes on to say. It's whether or not we discern the body. Verse 29. Now, there are three possible ways to understand what Paul means here. Um, there's the Roman Catholic sense, not discerning the body of Jesus in the bread. Obviously, that, that must be rejected on the basis of Scripture and reason. Number two, we must discern the body of Christ recognizing his church, of which we're a part. That could be it. Clearly, the Corinthians were not doing this. There's their divisions and factions among them. Um, this is clearly the context. But Paul doesn't use that idea of body actually until the next chapter where he kind of makes a big point about it. So it makes more sense then to go with option three, that the body actually means the same thing it did in verse 27, the body and blood of the Lord, which was given for us. In other words, when we eat and drink the Lord's Supper, we need to listen to what the bread and the cup are telling us that Jesus suffered and died as a perfect sacrifice for my sin 
to secure my salvation as an act of God's supreme grace and mercy towards me, an undeserving and unworthy sinner. And so we discern the body and we examine ourselves in respect of that body which was broken for us. So as I consider taking the elements of the bread and the cup, I consider my worthiness to take hold of the body of what the body and blood of Jesus achieved for me. So it makes sense that Paul's charge to the Corinthians to examine themselves at the Lord's Supper means the same thing he actually tells them to do in his next letter. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. And notice the similar wording. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? This is far more, friends, than when we come to take the Lord's Supper, we just say sorry for some remembered sins or kind of balance the books with God. This is about asking myself, as I put this bread and grape juice in me, am I confident that Christ is in me? It's about asking myself seriously whether there's anything going on in my heart and my life which suggests that I have no right to fellowship with Jesus or the benefits of his cross. Considering the serious warnings of verse 30 and verse 32, it also means looking at my life and trying to discern where the Lord might be disciplining me, trying to get my attention where I'm suffering and things are not going my way and I've either been ignorant or pig-headed because I'm not looking to Jesus for everything. Now, this is very important. I've called this heading preemptive judgment. That's because there's a theme of judgment which runs through from verse 29 to the end. And Paul actually uses the same word for judgment seven times with increasing severity. It's not always clear in the English, but it's, it's there in the Greek. In verse 29, we're to discern or to judge the body. This is how we avoid judgment on ourselves. We recognize what happened at the cross and our part in it. We avoid judgment on ourselves, and that judgment comes in the form of weakness, illness, and death, verse 30, for unworthy partakers, those who have not judged the body. And so we're to judge ourselves truly, verse 31, to avoid judgment. But that judgment is explained in verse 32, because if we're judged by the Lord in this life, verse 32, it may still be for our good, because it's an opportunity to stop, to think, to turn back, to repent, to avoid being literally judged along with the world when Jesus returns and counted outside the kingdom. And finally, the Corinthian Christians are not to come physically hungry with a selfish desire to, sap, uh, to satisfy their physical appetites, which will only be for judgment, verse 34. Instead, if they eat at home, then everyone comes equal under the gospel then they can really humble themselves together at the Lord's table and enjoy the benefits of the Lord's Supper, fellowship with Jesus because of his death, and because of his death, fellowship with each other for whom he also died. Well, I hope we've spent a bit of time this morning just reminding each other what a special thing the Lord's Supper is. It's, it's far more than just a mid-service snack. Of course, it's special, but it's also serious. It's a precious gift given to us by Jesus, which has serious consequences for its abuse. But as much as there are serious consequences for its abuse, there are also great blessings 
for using it properly. And here are just four as we move to an end. Number one, as we regularly take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that Jesus died in the past to forgive us all our sins. And as he did, he secured a place for us in heaven in the future when he returns. And between the past and the future and the present, we are kept in fellowship with him and with each other by his sustaining grace. Number two, as we regularly take the Lord's Supper, we're given the opportunity to take stock of our lives, especially our claims on Christ and his claims on us. It's an opportunity to be humbled under the Lord's mighty hand and not to keep going down a wrong path which may end up in our destruction. It's an opportunity to be humbled under the Lord's mighty hand so that he might lift us up in Christ. It's a spiritual checkpoint because we're very good at fooling ourselves, aren't we? Number three, as we regularly take the Lord's Supper, pausing to ask ourselves honestly whether or not we're truly saved, we should actually find evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives to encourage us, giving us the assurance to say, yes, I am in Christ and Christ is in me. And if we don't find that, well, we don't need some bread and grape juice to fix that. We actually need Jesus. And number four, as we regularly take the Lord's Supper together, we enjoy fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and with each other, those for whom he died, recognizing that our oneness is based entirely in Christ. Now, none of this, of course, means we've got to come to the table perfect. None of us can do that anyway. We might not come perfect, but we must come humbly, in faith, and in the name of Jesus. The very real and visual proclamation of the gospel in the Lord's Supper to us might be just the food we need to strengthen us, to make the changes in our lives we need to do with the Spirit's help, to enjoy truer fellowship with Christ and truer fellowship with his people. It is, a, as some have said, a strengthening ordinance. Now, this passage in 1 Corinthians draws a stark contrast between physical and spiritual food. The real problem that the Corinthians faced was that as they stuffed their faces, their souls starved. So we only eat a little ordinary food when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, a little bit of bread, a little bit of grape juice. We do that for two reasons. One is to remind us that this is not for our bodies. But instead, the death that it proclaims to us, the death of Christ that it proclaims, is a feast for our souls which will nourish us until Jesus comes back. And number two, we have a, a, a tiny meal today to remind us that one day we will enjoy a feast, a great banquet in heaven in true and perfect fellowship with the Lord and all our blood-bought brothers and sisters. Isn't that wonderful? a wonderful thing to remember and to look forward to? Well, we're taking the Lord's Supper in a week next Sunday. We do it first Sunday of every month here at Grace. And perhaps these are things we can think about and pray about in the week ahead, preparing our hearts to come and enjoy what Christ offers to us in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for so many gifts you have given us to strengthen us and grow us in Christ. We thank you for baptism, for prayer, for your word, for church, for the Lord's Supper. And Father God, we do pray that we would recognize and value and use these gifts that you've given us so that we might grow in Christ, be, more better, and be better prepared for heaven and to live more for him in the world now. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory's sake. Amen.
Come find your seat over here. Um, if you don't know how Slido works, if you don't feel like asking a question from the floor, scan the QR code that'll be on the screen in a sec. Punch in that code and then you can ask an anonymous question. Otherwise, if you want to ask a question from the floor, raise your hand and I'll bring the mic to you. Sweet. I'm going to pray for us quickly and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of gathering today. We thank you for your church. We thank you for your son Jesus and his sacrifice. We thank you for the Lord's Supper and the reminder that that is of his death um, and what he has done for us. We ask today that as we think on that and discuss that, you would bring out fruitful discussions that are helpful um, and edifying and bring glory to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Cool. I'm going to throw it open for a question from the floor. If anyone's keen, raise your hand. We'll finish up at about 20 past 10. Cool. No questions. Easy week for you, Ben. Done well. I'll give him a bit of a time to think. Do you guys want to say anything from your research that you'd like to share? Yeah, maybe just one, one thing. Oh, Cam, you got a question. Uh, I guess mine is more of a just a comment on, on the tale of the question that asked about tongues uh, last week. The Westminster Confession of Faith, insisting that scripture is sufficient in our day, holds that those former ways um, of God's revealing his will unto his people have now... That one. There we go. I've got it. We're good. Uh, yeah, Cam, um, yeah, sorry if it wasn't clear. It's certainly no further revelation, absolutely. There's no authoritative revelation that comes through any kind of tongue speaking or words from the Spirit or words from God or anything like that. So, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Confession's very clear on that. Cool. Got a question online. I might read that one out. If you have a question from the floor, have a bit of a think, um, and I'll throw it out to you guys again. Uh, the question here from online says, what do you think about churches that teach that anyone can take the Lord's Supper, saved and unsaved alike? That's a nice um, softball question. Uh, <laughs> And so I think if you looked at the First Corinthians passage today, um, like very, very clear that failure to discern um, the body, whether that's discerning who's a believer or not, or someone personally discerning whether you're in Christ or not, um, it's very clear that if you fail to do that and if you're unsaved, um, then you're inviting, in some ways, like an extra harsh judgment on yourself. So maybe even more than just your normal level of sin, it's, it's worse to um, be particip- or uh, make the form of trying to participate in Christ when you're actually unrepentant, unsaved. Um, and then the severity of it is quite clear as well, is that people, Paul suggesting that people are actually dying as a result of their failure to discern um, whether someone, the right, like people saved are taking part in communion or not. So seems pretty severe, so it's a failure, I think, also of the church to be stewards of this mystery of God um, as well. So, yeah, I think the 
going in very dangerous waters that leaders aren't doing their job and, and they're inviting people into error, into grave judgment. Um, I guess historically speaking, this has been done in different ways. We, we often call this work that Ben was talking about of the offices of the church and doing this called fencing the table. Not that we literally kind of build a fence around the table, but metaphorically. Uh, what used to happen a long time ago in Scotland <coughs> was that the trainee ministers of the church would go and visit every family in the church once a year because they took communion once a year. Um, and he would test their, their knowledge of the gospel, uh, test their lives, and they would be given a little token, a uh, little thing that they had to bring to the door of the church on Communion Sunday, and only if they brought a token were they allowed to take the Lord's Supper. Um, I guess we don't, we don't practice that sort of fencing here at Grace, but we certainly do warn um, people to think very carefully about their relationship with Jesus before they take the Lord's Supper, because the unsaved really shouldn't take it. I don't know if it's going to make a huge difference to someone who's not saved to you know, have a very unsatisfying tiny meal. Um, but yeah, they need Jesus, I think, that, like, like Ben was suggesting there, um, more than Lord Supper. Cool. Um, throw it out now for a question. So you did pretty much cover this, but I just maybe need some further discussion of it because I don't get it very well. Um, so when we examine ourselves and we find sin in our, sin in our lives for the Lord's Supper, is um, basically like us seeing our sin, is that the point where it's like, all right, we've examined ourselves, we've seen our life. Uh, oh. So we examine ourselves and we see um, sin in our lives, and that's kind of the point where it's like, all right, we've examined ourselves. Um, and then if, if that's the case as well, how does that work with when we examine ourselves and then we should decide not to participate? I think it's a good question. Yeah, I definitely was saying, trying to say this morning that it's more than just going, right, there's sin in my life, I need to say sorry for that. The sin in my life should make me question my right to take hold of what is, what is held out to me in the Lord's Supper. So, you know, what does my sin say about my relationship with Jesus, actually? Um, I think that's what Paul's getting at with the examining. And so it's not just a case of going, right, I'm going to say sorry for my sin or, or not or whatever, but I'm actually going to lean into the gospel at that point. Is that what I actually want to do? Is actually because of my relationship with Jesus, this sin needs to be brought to him, needs to be dealt with in my relationship with him, which then has effects for how I deal with things going forward. There might be times where I go, actually, no, my, my heart's just not right right now for dealing with this. I'm actually a hypocrite by taking hold of the Lord's Supper because my relationship with Jesus is not what it should be and I actually need to go and do some stuff first, do some business with him maybe before I do that. Does that kind of get into where you're going with the question or kind of? I'll let Ben... Oh, maybe just clarify your question again, Sarah. Um, I guess, I think like through the rest of my life I'm going to come to the Lord's Supper and be like, I have, like, areas I need to work on. Um, so I guess maybe it's, like, when is it just, um, like, because everything stands in the way of your relationship with Jesus. That's, like, so, like, kind of, like, almost what degree of sin or something do you decide to not participate anymore? I, I, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think sort of aligns with what Clint was saying and um, acknowledging that we're always going to be struggling with some sin in our life. 
Um, we're always going to have probably a bunch of sin that we're ignorant of as well. Um, and so, in part, I'd say some of that, that degree, that line, would have to be on conscience um, and then working out, is this really something that I've, um, I've faced and grappled with, with God and um, are working with him through his grace um, to repent of and to turn away from? And I think that line of, like, am I actually doing that? Am I at the point where I, I am actually truly repentant of it or in the process of engaging with it? Um, that's a matter of conscience at, at that point. I, I'm not sure there's any hard rule about that. Just add to that by saying that I think the Lord's Supper often is what we need in those situations, actually, to be reminded that this is the body that was given for me, that this is the blood. It's nothing that I've done, but this is what actually saves me and forgives my sin. So it might be the strengthening that I actually need to go and deal with the stuff in my life, actually, rather than go, I'm just going to kind of do it in a pietistic sense where I go, I'm just kind of held up from that until I've sorted myself out. Um, because actually, it, we sort ourselves out in, in Christ's strength and because of the gospel. So yeah, and I think Ben's point about, you know, the attitude that we come, is, is there any sin I'm holding on to that I'm actually not willing to bring to Jesus? Well, that says a lot about my relationship with him more than my sin, actually. Um, in which case, not a good idea to claim that, which is which looks, looks wrong. Yeah. Good question. Two things. Do you eat halal certified meat? Do you eat halal certified meat that has been blessed by an imam? Because almost all the meat in Australia is halal certified. And secondly, it... Uh, Whenever I was growing up as a young fellow in Ireland, we had communion four times a year. The elder came round to the house and delivered the pre-communion cards and asked us, have you prepared yourself for it? Which was very good. And the third thing was, uh, whenever you take communion, you proclaim the Lord's death till he come. Who do you proclaim it to? I was told that we are a spiritual church and you, spirit, you proclaim it to the spiritual world and that Christ has overcome the spirits that are evil. How long, mate? Can I start with the last one because it's kind of uppermost in my mind? Um, there was a misunderstanding for a long time that we proclaim that we actually lift Jesus' death up to, G, up to God. That's the Roman Catholic view, and that's obviously wrong. Um, I think primarily we proclaim Christ's death and Lord's Supper to ourselves and to one another, first and foremost. But, you know, what Paul says in, in Ephesians about how in the church, God's story is proclaimed to the, the powers and authorities in the cosmic places. There's an element of that as well, I'm sure, which is the, the, the death of Christ, which defines us as the church, actually is proclaimed far and wide. So, yeah, it's a great point. Um, do you want to pick up on I have no idea about the second question. I, I had to think about this, and had, I was having a read around about how often um, different churches do uh, communion. You know, some people, yeah, four times a year, three times a year, twice a year, once every two months, once a week. Um, and I, I, I didn't really know what guided that. I know some of it was practicality, so I was, I was looking at some of the like Prezi churches and Methodist churches, it's just a pure practicality of they don't have 
uh, they've itinerant ministers that come around, and so they're only going to do it when you have a minister come in to help administer it. Um, but for churches that, that have a regular minister there to administer it, um, yeah, I'm not really sure what would guide us doing once a week versus once a month or, or less frequently. I do think that point on the... Um, I was reading a bit about communion preparation, um, and I thought that was, um, that was a good uh, concept for us to really um, have that time, preparation time, to reflect um, and to really um, appreciate the, the weight and the blessing it, it is to have that sacrament. Um, and whether, you know, how does that look like at different churches? I'm not sure for a church that does it every week or every month, you know, I'm not sure, you know, if that's how you, how you might consider incorporating that or not. Um, again, I'm, I'm a bit fuzzy on the frequency of, of things and, and the rationale um, for how often you do it because it definitely seems like something that is a blessing and a good thing for the church. Uh, but, but then why not every week and why do some churches do it less, less frequently? Don't have a good answer for that, sorry. Um, yeah, I guess adding to that, I've heard it said it's got to be often enough that we actually enjoy the benefits of it, but not so frequent that we lose our sense of what's going on. This familiarity does breed contempt, we're just built like that. So, I don't know, monthly seems to be a good compromise that we do here. Um, Calvin, I think, had four times in Geneva. So, yeah. Halal meets, um, I think what we read in 1 Corinthians 10, matter of conscience. But if it's going to make another brother stumble, then he comes first. Bottom line, that's what I'd say. Yeah. Um, we've got about five minutes. There's two questions online, so maybe we tackle them. Um, I've got one here that says, following the understanding that unsaved people refrain from the Lord's Supper, should baptised children also refrain until making their own profession of faith? Nice, easy one for you. This is a very difficult question. Thank you to whoever asked it. Um, and there's, there's lots of, I guess, disagreement amongst godly people who read the Bible faithfully and carefully. Um, uh, what do I think? This is a question we're starting to ask with our own kids at the moment. Um, look, with the Lord's Supper being a, a fulfillment of the Old Testament Passover, there is a sense in which, because our children, baptized children within the covenant that it belongs to them as well. But can they examine themselves in the same way as we read in 1 Corinthians 11? Probably not. So at that point, is it, is it right, is it wrong to take the Lord's Supper? But then again, could any you know, kid in Israel have really understood the significance of what was going on in the Lord's Supper? So I guess what I'm saying is I'm in two minds. I don't know if you've got a more clear... No? I think I err on the side of caution with the... Um saying how, yeah, how we do need to discern carefully and if we're sort of on the fence, I don't decide with not. <laughs> but, but that's all I can say, really. I don't think there's... Yeah. I, I see the arguments, the arguments both sides, but if it's sort of like iffy, I don't decide with caution and be like, oh, maybe not until, again, until you can have a profession of faith or someone can, you know, a, a church elder can kind of assess someone properly and kind of confirm that, I guess. So that's true. No, no simple answer for that one. Here at Grace, we do leave it up to the conscience of parents. 
Um, you know your kids, you know where they stand before the Lord, so do that. Cool. And then the last question for today, um, coming in from online, it's referencing 1 Corinthians 11 verse 27, so I'll read that again just for reference. It says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And then the question here asks, if any person in the church has an unresolved spirit of bitterness or an ungodly attitude towards another, should they refrain from taking communion? It's a very important question. Um, and I think the, oh, sorry, can you keep that up there just so I can reference it? Thanks. Um, it is a very important question because of the consequences I think that we read about this morning. Um, you know, the Lord's Supper is a very serious thing and a huge, uh, valuable gift from the Lord. But I think what we, what we looked at this morning also shows how the first thing we've got to look at is where we stand with Jesus. That's the first relationship that we've got to look at when it comes to taking the Lord's Supper and where those spirits of, of bitterness or ungodly attitude towards one another may come from. What are we doing with that? What are we, how are we holding on to that? Are we keeping, are using that as a way of keeping our distance between ourselves and who we are in Christ? Um, like I said earlier, I think in some senses, we need to be bringing those things to Christ, to the cross, and deal with that. So, right to take the Lord's Supper as a strengthening ordinance because of our relationship with Jesus, remind us who we are in Christ, and then as a strengthening to go out and deal with some of those things. It might not be a simple, you know, something we can do in a simple and quick way, but it's first of all about our relationship with Jesus before it's about our relationship with each other, even though it's kind of all tied up together. That's, that's I guess, how I'd answer that one. I guess every situation is slightly different as well, so I might get a different uh, pastoral response. Do you want to have a go? Yeah, I think it's, it's kind of along, in some ways along the line of Cyril's question as well, um, in terms of the nature of that ongoing, say, struggle. So you can have a struggle with a certain um, area um, of, yeah, it can be of sin as well. And so, for example, if I struggle with, like, um, anger and frustration at, someone at work or something like that and um, there's various times in which maybe for like two months I will um, really not be um, engaging with that at all leaving that fester um, not um, putting it to God um, not relying on um, you know following Jesus lead on that and allowing him to change me um, and relying on his grace and so maybe during those periods where it really is I've just let this like go and fester and my relationship with Jesus has not impacted this area of sin in my life, then, yeah, maybe I shouldn't be um, taking communion. Um, but at the same time, as Clint said, if it's an area that you continue to struggle with, give it up, but you continue to struggle with, but you're giving up to the Lord, trusting in Jesus um, to uh, continue to sanctify and cleanse you, um, even if you continue to struggle with that uh, area of, of sin that is waxing and waning, I still think, yes, Clint said, it's about the relationship with Jesus and, and also the benefits of engaging with um, in the sacrament um, that can help us continue our sanctification, continue to um, deal with that sin too. So again, it's a, it's a matter of discernment, a bit of conscience there too. So yeah, not, not clear cut, but um, I hope that two sort of examples might be helpful. Cool. That's all we've got time for because um, we've got the business meeting coming up. Thanks for your questions.
Um, we'll have another Q&A next week, but I'm going to pray for us as we close, so join me in that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord's Supper. We thank you for the gospel message it proclaims of Jesus' body and his blood um, put out for us, Lord. We thank you um, for the tangible reminder that is of what you've done for us. Help us to rejoice in that, um, to examine ourselves and to um, yeah, trade with caution, but also not to lose the hope of the gospel and the reminder that it gives us. We ask today that reflecting on his death would give us hope as we live out um, yeah, your message in our lives this week. We pray this for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.